morning. Good morning. Huh. Good morning, guys. Okay, this is my request. We are few but powerful. Uh, could you move? <laughs> Can you come closer to me? <laughs> so that we feel a little bit closier. That would be so awesome. <laughs> Thank you very, very much. I appreciate it. <laughs> You're such good sports. Did you get new shoes? Awesome. That's so exciting. Okay. Um, so I had, um, I was telling everybody this so uh, this week, so I thought I will share it with you too. Um, so I went to, have you, has anybody here been to the Pitt Meadows, um, the walk the Pitt Meadows Dyke? Have you been there? Do you know what I'm talking about, anybody? Okay, so this is what I suggest. Put it on your places to go when you need to be with people, but you can't be inside, and so you're going to be outside and do something with people. Go to Pitt Meadows um, and walk the dike. It is a very long walk, so you'll have to, like, turn around at some point. It's very long, but it is so nice. It's so pretty. Um, it's right along the Fraser River, and there's these, like, really, really pretty cranberry fields um, that are beautiful, very beautiful. And then, um, and it's all along, like, the backdrop of the mountain range. It's gorgeous. So anyways, but there's also, there's an airport there, which is super fun. And so uh, this past weekend, I went there for the very first time. And uh, my friend and I, we were walking, and there was, like, planes coming in and out and in and out constantly. And there were helicopters. So there is this, there must be like a tour company. Um, and so this, we were walking past the airport and this helicopter is firing up and it looked like somebody was getting ready to board. And I'm not quite sure if you actually like, if you board a hel helicopter like you board a plane. But anyways, they were getting ready to go on the plane. And it was like it was a movie. Because the man was in like a very tailored gray suit. And the lady was in a very fancy dress. And I figured there is only two ways to travel on a helicopter. You're either in something very fancy, like a gray suit and a fancy dress, or you're in camo. Like those would seem to be the only options for a helicopter. And so every time helicopters would go in and out and there were people, okay, so I like, it's, you get to see lots because it's a big space. Anyways, every time people would come out, I was like anticipating, like, what are they going to be wearing? Like, is this a fancy affair or is this like tactical? Uh, and it was, it was very, very cool. And I was expecting somebody to be like hanging from like the runner. I don't even know what the feet are called, but you know what I'm talking about. Like somebody, somebody would be pulling a Tom Cruise, uh, but nobody did. And so that was disappointing, but it was super cool. Anyways, the sum total of all of that is you should go to Pit Meadows and go for a walk because <laughs> it's very, very nice. <laughs> so that's, there's that. Um, and I did want to say this. So we are starting to, like, land this plane for, the, for our Nehemiah thing. Things are landing. We're coming to a close here. And, uh, yeah, so it'll be it's, – it's good. We've got, I think, this week and then next week, I believe, is our last – Yes, next week is our last week in Nehemiah. So, crazy. 
And then we've got some exciting things happening. Omega's going to be doing some chapel stuff. It's going to be wonderful. And then, and then we're like done. We have four chapels left. Whoa. We have four chapels left. Wow. I just like figured that out right now. Okay, anyways, moving on. Okay, so this, this uh, series that we've been working on, talking about reformation, what we've been looking at, so just more of a recap, is it's a series. We've been looking at this process of how reformation, um, how it's this returning to scripture, right? We saw that when Gavin was talking about Ezra and his uh, devotion to the word of God and to the obedience of the law. And then we saw through Nehemiah this reforming through prayer and returning to prayer constantly. And then we got to see that rebuilding, um, that reformation is rebuilding through some really good work. And then last week Gavin shared about how reformation is responding to scripture and putting in new rhythms into life. And then so today we're going to be taking a look at sort of the part two of responding. That reformation is a response, yes, to God's word, but it is also a response to God's promises. And so we're going to be taking a look at the Israelites and how they responded to God's promises today. So in thinking about last week and the Israelites' response, their response was very physical, right? So they came together. This was very new, and they were putting into practice um, physical responses and physical gatherings in ways that they, hadn't, they had not done since Joshua was their leader. So years and years and years have gone by, and they, they're now putting these new rhythms into place. So they're gathering, which we are all looking forward to those, that glorious day that we can gather, uh, yes, in heaven, but here on earth. Um, they listened attentively, and as they listened attentively to the word, uh, they began to respond by bowing down, by raising hands, by shouting amen. And then as they understood, and there is an increase in understanding of the word of God, they also responded physically by weeping and by celebrating, by eating, by sharing. And then we ended off last week thinking about how they were going out and they were going camping. Remember that? They're heading out and they're going to go camping. So now, this camping uh, really is the Feast of Tabernacles. And so, while I'm going, and the Feast of Tabernacles is this celebration where they went back into living in tents so that they could remember that God provided for all of their needs when they were in the desert. That God was providing for them, he fed them, he gave them to, they gave them water to drink. So that celebration, that feast, that camping time, uh, is all about remembering God's presence and his promise, his, his, his presence with them. So now, they're coming off of the camping trip, and we see that the very next day, they get this, another spiritual awakening, this spiritual experience, and again, they respond. So, we're going to take a look at chapter 9, looking at verse 1, and we're going to look at verse 1 through 5. So, while you're turning there, I'm, or pulling it up on your phone, I'm going to pray with us. 
So, Lord, I thank you so much for this morning. I thank you so much for your word. And, God, I, um, I pray that you would help us, empower us to hear what you have to say and help us and empower us to devote ourselves to your word and to the obedience of it. I pray this in your name, Lord. Amen. So, chapter 9, verse 1. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together fasting and wearing sackcloth and having dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their place and confessed their sins and the wickedness of their fathers. They stood where they were to uh, they stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of a day and spent another quarter in confession and worshiping the Lord their God. Standing on the stairs were the Levites, Joshua, Benai, Kedmiel, Shebniah, Buni, uh, Sherbiah, Benai, and Kenai, something like that. So, who all called aloud um, to the voice of, with loud voices to their God. And they all shouted at the very end of verse 5, He said, stand and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. So, we're here at the end of their Feast of Tabernacles, their festival, and where they've been remembering what God has done while they were in, while their forefathers were in the desert. And as they're, uh, that is sort of on top of their growing understanding from the word that has been read, they now come to realize their own sin. They're recognizing the the sinfulness of their forefathers as well as their their own selves. And so what they do as a response to hearing God's word and coming to understand it, they make these physical expressions of repentance and confession. So we never, like, when usually when we're dealing with repentance, what we do is we have that, like, twinge of, like, ooh, I got to work on this. And then we go off and into the prayer room or into our room and we deal with it sort of personally with God. But they're making some very, very different choices than we typically do or they're making some different practices that we typically do. So first they start to fast recognizing that they are desiring God more than anything else, than anything that could uh, feed into their beings. They're desiring God more. Then what they're doing is they're wearing sackcloth. And so sackcloth throughout Scripture is noted as something that people wear when they're mourning. So here, what they're doing is they're putting on this sackcloth as, um, as the, a representation of their mourning or of their grief of their sin. They are grieved as a result of the sin of their forefathers, as a result of their own sin. They're grieving. And then they're throwing dust or ashes on themselves. And this is a symbol where they are identifying with death. So they're making these pretty drastic physical expressions, really drastic responses to God's promise that they've just been reflecting upon through the Feast of Tabernacles and the reading of God's word. They're making these really expressive confessions of faith, of, sorry, of their sin and coming to repentance. 
And typically, if I, I think that we would often, you know, we might go off and like um, repent on our own and we, we do it, we, it's sometimes a little bit on the quick side. Oh, yes. Okay, God, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. Thank you. Amen. And then we carry on. Where here, they spend a quarter of the day just sitting, sitting in uncomfortable clothes, hungry and with dirt on their face. Because they've decided they're, they're going to fully acknowledge the depths of their sin. And we see in Scripture, in, in, um, in, chapter, or in verse 4 and verse 5 in chapter 9, that in doing so, in fully sitting in the depths of their sin and recognizing their sin, it leads them not to condemnation. It leads them to worship. Often, when we're dealing with our sin, we want to, like, avoid it like the plague so that we don't have that sense of feeling condemned. Where here, they're sitting in it, really recognizing their sin. And then that leads to worship. That leads to the freedom that God gives us. Now, I think that when we talk about forgiveness, when we talk about confession and repentance... We, we've got some like funny, we deal with it sort of funny. It makes us feel uncomfortable. And so then we start to use different words to try to make ourselves feel better, right? We make a distinction between guilt and shame. We, and then we toss in, well, it, that's different than conviction. And I have, and I've said, shame is typically the thing that like pushes us away from God. And confession is the thing that draws us towards God. Like those are sort of uh, how we emotionally respond or like how, how we respond to sin. And yet, any way that you slice it, no matter what word you use, shame, guilt, confession, or um, conviction, the reality is sin doesn't feel good, right? And often, when, when we're dealing with confession or with repentance, we just want to move real quick into feeling better, right? We want to live our best life. We want to have good vibes only, right? Like, that's where we're hoping to be. And yet here, we have this example of sitting in the not good feels. Sitting in it. Now... It sounds so like counter what we would be, what we would intuitively do, right? We're just like, oh, let's get this off of us and move on. But here they're really recognizing and taking the time to really consider their sinfulness. And so it just leaves me with the question, um, do we actually deal with our sin? Do we actually deal with it? Do we... recognize what it really is, what we've really, what our choices have really been? Do we really sit in the discomfort that this is um, outside of God's desire for my life? And do we really sit and recognize that? Again, that with me su- suggesting that maybe we don't, my, my um, intention is not for us to, to condemn ourselves or to feel, continue to feel the weight of our sin, because that's not the gospel message at all, right? The gospel message is a message of freedom and forgiveness. However, I think we can more fully come to know that forgiveness and freedom when we know exactly what it is we've been freed from. 
And sometimes we need to just sit for a moment. Instead of like trying to brush off the bad, fe- the bad feels right away, we need to recognize, oh, this, this is my sin. I mournful that this is my sin. This makes me feel very uncomfortable that this is my sin. And yet God takes that, gives us freedom, and that leads us to a place of worship. So I don't know what, where that hits for you, but perhaps there's something that you've not dealt with, that you've tried to brush off, and it just seems to come back and again. Maybe, maybe you need to sit with it just a little bit longer. Not, not to continue on sinning, that's not what I'm saying, but just to sit with it, recognize the reality of that sin um, so that we can experience more fully God's free, freedom from that. So there's that. So they respond to God's promises through repentance. And then we see in chapter 9 that they respond to God's promises by remembering his promises. So this, we're going to we're gonna like take some nice good time and just sit with scripture. And we're going to read a ton of it. So I'm just going to move and get a little bit comfy. Okay, we're going to read from verse 5 to verse 31. So here we go. So they then respond in prayer, remembering. And this is the longest prayer in Scripture. And we're going to read pretty much all of it. Here we go. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens and even the highest heavens and all their starry hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You gave life to everything and the multitudes of heaven worship you. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you, and you made a covenant with him to give his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Girgashites. You have kept your promises because you are righteous. You saw the suffering of our forefathers in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent miraculous signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials and all the people of his land. For you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself, which remains to this day. You divided the sea before them so they could pass through on dry ground. But you hurled their pursuers into the depths like a stone into mighty waters. By day, you led them with a pillar of cloud. And by night, with a pillar of fire to give them light on the way they were to take. You came down on Mount Sinai. You spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and laws that were just and right, and decrees and commands that are good. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and gave them commands, decrees, and laws through your servant Moses. In their hunger, you gave them bread in the heavens, and in their thirst, you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go in and take possession of the land and you, that you had sworn with uplifted hands to give them. But they, our forefathers, became arrogant and stiff-necked and did not obey your commands. 
They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them. Even when they cast for themselves an idol, an image of, of a calf, and said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt, or when they committed awful blasphemies. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the desert. By day, and the pillar of cloud did not cease to guide them on their path, nor did the pillar of fire by night to shine the way they were to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold manna from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. For 40 years, you sustained them in the desert. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. You gave them kingdoms and nations, allotting to them the remotest of frontiers. They took over the country of Shion, the king of Heshbon, and, and the country of Og, king of Bashan. You made their sons as numerous as the stars in the sky, and you brought them into the land that you told their, for, their fathers to enter and possess. Their sons went in and took possession of the land. You subdued them before the Canaanites who lived in the land, and you handed the Canaanites over to them among their, along with their kings and people of the land to deal with them as they pleased. They captured fortified cities and fertile lands. They took possession of houses filled with all kinds of good things, wells already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. They ate to the full and were well nourished. They, revere, they reveled in your great goodness. But they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They put your law behind their backs. They killed your prophets who had admonished them in order to turn back to you. They committed awful, awful blasphemies. So you handed them over to their enemies who oppressed them. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you from heaven. You heard them. And in your great compassion, you gave them deliverers who rescued them from their hand of their enemies. But as soon as they were at rest, they, did, they again did what was evil in your sight. Then you abandoned them into the hands of their enemies so that they would be ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven, and in your compassion, you delivered them time after time. You warned them to return to your law, but they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances, by which a man will live, sorry, by which a man will live in on, if only he obeys them. Stubbornly, they turned their backs on you, became stiff-necked, and refused to listen. For many years, you were patient with them. By your spirit, you admonished them through your prophets, yet they paid no attention. So you handed them over to their neighbors, their neighboring peoples. But in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are gracious and merciful God. So here is this incredible story, this prayer of remembering they take time and they go right back, starting that God created. This is where they began. And they move through this, um, this 
constant reflection and remembering of God's faithfulness. He was faithful in choosing Abram. He was faithful in, um, in providing for Abraham. He was faithful in bringing the people out of, ex- out of Egypt. He was faithful when they, um, when they made for themselves an idol. He was faithful to feed them, faithful to give them something to drink, faithful even in their clothing, faithful even when they turned their backs on him, faithful even when they turned their backs on him, faithful even when they turned their backs on him. Like this is a constant story of how God is continuously faithful. He made a promise to Abraham, and he has kept that promise for years and years and years. And so they're taking time, and they're remembering all of God's faithfulness to his promises. And that draws them to the place to say that you are a gracious and merciful God. As they remember his faithfulness, they are reminded of just how gracious he is. Now, This prayer, which we read part of it, is the longest prayer in in the text. And this isn't just, uh, that's not just an interesting tidbit. And this isn't just the story for Israel to remember. This is a story that is for us to remember. This is their story. This is the identity. The identity of the Israelites is based off of what they're remembering. Our story doesn't begin when we first said the sinner's prayer, right? It doesn't start when we first got, you know, baptized or when we sort of start our testimony and says, well, I grew up in a Christian family. Like, that's not even where your story begins. This is where your story begins. Because we are who we are because of who God is. This is our story. And we are called time and time and time again throughout Scripture to remember. This is, God is constantly drawing our attention back to how faithful he has been in the past. Because when we can remember what God has done in the past, we can be assured that he is faithful in our present and he will come through in our future. It is really, God constantly calls us back to remember. And that is, the, that is the work of reformation. Now, who here is a camp person? You grew up going to camp? Yeah? Okay, I, I'm a camp person. I love camp. And so this is partly why I brought a camping chair. Um, this is also, uh, yes, yeah, so I grew up going to camp. And I grew up going to Brayside Camp for the Ontarians in the room um, who know what I'm talking about. And, uh, and so I, when I was a kid, um, I actually got farmed off to my grandmother because I, was, I wasn't old enough to take care of myself, but my brothers were already working, so I would have been stuck at home by myself. So I got farmed off, and I spent my summers with my 75-year-old grandmother, at camp. And I got to tell you, that's a wild summer hanging out with your 75-year-old grandmother when you're, you know, 10. Um, so anyways, every year I would spend time with my grandma. And I, and I grew up going to camp, and I love it. And I love, I love being in the tabernacle, which is what we call it at Brayside. I love being there, and I love being at the altar and spending time with the Lord in a way that's unhurried 
and just to let the Holy Spirit move in my life. But I love the deck. I love what happens on the deck. So my grandma had a trailer, and she, she had this deck. And every day, it's the same thing. You go outside after lunch, you go outside, and you just sit on the deck. And then people just come by. And they just, do you guys know the camp people, you know what I'm talking about? Where you just, people just come by, and then they just, like, pull up a, a chair on your deck. And then you just start talking. And, and it was so fun to listen to my grandmother uh, chat with her friends. And so uh, they're 75-year-old people too. And it usually started with, well, you know, so-and-so, they died. And that's usually how it started. Every conversation started with somebody had died this past year. And, <laughs> and then it moved into, well, you know, they're related to so-and-so. And that's so-and-so's first husband, and that's so-and-so's first wife, because, like, that's just the way, that was just where they were in life, and that's the season of life that they were in. And so it was so wonderful, though, to listen to these people share their stories. And then what would happen is, after talking about who's dead and who's remarried, they start talking about what happened in the past. And they would start saying, remember, remember when you were pastoring at this church? Remember when this was happening? And they'd like start to tell stories of what was happening in their past. And it was fascinating to me listening to these old saints talk about what God was doing in their lives. Well, I've since grown up. My grandmother has since passed away. And my parents now have a cottage at that camp. And so last summer, I had a, one of those moments so it was in the evening. We had just been to church, and we were sitting on the deck. And one of uh, my parents' friends came and just sat down. Like, it's just everybody is always welcome. If there's a chair to sit, you just sit. And so here, here was this friend of my, of my dad's, uh, and he came and sat. And he's one of those people that, like, has incredible stories and is an incredible storyteller. And you kind of think, how is it, God, that you do such crazy things in these people's lives? Like, it was shocking. Like, I just had to keep, like, putting my chin back up because it was shocking, the things that God was doing in this man's life. And we just sat there being eaten by mosquitoes alive. Like, I had so, my legs were just ripped to shreds by the end of the night. But we were just sat there for three hours listening to one story after another after another. And my parents, and they'd say, oh, remember back when in St. Catharines and this happened and this church? And they would just started to reminisce. And there is something so powerful when we take time to remember. Now, typically, that's done by old people, right? But let us not wait till we're 75 to be rememberers. Because God's done stuff in your life. God did something in your life last week. God has done stuff in your life last year. And so we are challenged by what's going on in with the lives of the Israelites in Nehemiah. We're challenged to be people who remember. Because when we remember, there's some incredible things that happen. So remembering and reminiscing, it builds relationship, right? Like, I'm sure at some point, 
you like if you were at Summit last year, you've said to somebody, hey, remember last year when, dot, 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 dot. There is a unifying um, action that takes place when we remember. And so that's part of the communal aspect of remembering. It brings unity. But then it also brings unity to, with us to God because we're recalling what he has done. Remembering also helps us because this is exactly what happens to the Israelites. Remembering helps us to um, not repeat history that's not good. Because what they do in the, in the next few verses that we didn't read is they start to realize if they don't make a change... If they don't change their behavior, they're going to do exactly what everybody else did. They're going to become stiff-necked. They're going to forget, and they're going to turn away from God. And so remembering helps us to change our ways. And then remembering helps us to re remember back to God. And by remember, I mean the Israelites, in their remembering what their story was, they, they were noticing how the people of God were detaching themselves from God. Where remembering God's faithfulness brings us back, reminds us who God is, and realigns us back with God. And so it remembers us with God. And so here's my challenge to you. The lawn chairs, they've been brought back out. They are no longer in hibernation. Grab a lawn chair sometime this week or this weekend. Grab a friend and just reminisce. Share stories of what God has been doing in your life. It doesn't even matter if they've heard the story before. That's the great thing about remembering and reminiscing. You share the same story, and it's great. So take some time to remember. Settle in and tell a story. So lastly... We see, in, uh, we see in our text that, so reformation leads to repentance. Reformation comes from remembering. And then we also see that reformation takes responsibility. So we've got another hefty section here that we're going to read. Chapter 10, all of it. Excluding all the names because I'm just going to butcher them. So I need you to just, you're just going to forgive me. So, and I'm not going to do it. Okay, so here we go. Um, it says this. So I'm going to start in verse 38 of chapter 9 and then go through 10. In view of all of this, so in view of all the remembering of what God has done and how the Israelites have behaved, in view of all of this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, uh, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seal to it. So then, in verse 28, it says, The rest of the people, the priests, Levites, gatekeepers, singers, temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring people for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and all their sons and daughters, who were able to understand, all these now join their brothers, the nobles. They bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God uh, through Moses. Uh, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord. So here's a little bit of, before I move on, here's a little bit of a tidbit. So 
They are saying that they're now binding themselves. They're making a solemn promise. In Scripture, that word, solemn promise, the Hebrew word for that is sheva. And that word means to seven one's self or to bind oneself seven times. So not only was it about like, you know, like we would say, um, if you're making a, a contract and you just scribble your signature on it, and then you're good to go. And it does say that they put their seal on it, but it's not just about writing their names on like a piece of papyrus, all right? Like this is about um, they're, they're sealing their, their oath seven times. With seven different things, they're now sealing their oath. And we see that practice done with, um, with, Mo- sorry, with Abraham when he makes an oath with King Abimelech in uh, Genesis chapter 21. He gives Abimelech seven lambs to sort of seal the oath. And so they're going to make seven promises, seven acts of responsibility. So here we go. They say, we promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the people around us or to take their daughters for our sons. When the neighboring people bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year, we will forego working in the land and will cancel all debts. We assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of God, for the bread set on the table, for the regular grain offerings and burnt offerings, for the offerings on the Sabbath, the new moon festivals, and the appointed feasts, for the holy offerings, for the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, and for all the duties of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have cast lots to determine when each, uh, each of our families will bring to the house of our God all set times uh, to contribute wood to burn on the altar of the Lord as it is written in the law. We also assume responsibility for bringing to the house of the Lord each year for the first fruits of our crops and every fruit tree. As it is also written in the law, we will bring the firstborn of our sons, of our cattle, of our herds, of our flocks, to the house of our God, to the priests ministering there. Moreover, we will bring to the storeroom of the house of our God, to the priests, the first of our ground meal, of our grain offerings, of the fruit of all the trees, and of the new wine and oil. And we will bring tithes of our crops to the Levites, for, the, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all the towns uh, where we work. A priest descended, uh, descended from Aaron is going to accompany the Levites when they receive the tithes, and the Levites are to bring the tenth of the tithes up to the house of our God and to the storeroom of the treasury. The people of Israel, including the Levites, are to bring their contributions of grain, new wine, and oil to the storerooms where the articles of our sanctuary are kept and where the ministering priests, gatekeepers, and singers stay. We will not neglect the house of our God. So here, they are making promises. They are choosing to take responsibility. 
Now, the names of those who I didn't read, that's, there are 84 people in there. There's a bunch of priests, Levites, leaders. But then we also see that their families, their wives, their, their, their husbands, their sons, their daughters, anyone who understands is now making this decision to promise to take responsibility. And if we boil all of that down, what it really comes down to is obedience. They're promising to be obedient to God. They promise to walk in God's law. Just like in Ezra, in Ezra where we read in, back the very first week, where it says in Ezra, Ezra, Ezra 7, that he devoted himself to the study of the word of God and to the obedience of the law of God, this is exactly what they're doing. They've now started to read the word of God, learn it, understand it, and now they're putting it into practice for obedience. Their understanding of the word of God can no longer stay dormant. It can't just be stagnant anymore. They have to put it into practice, which means they're taking responsibility. We all know, we've all had those experiences in class when you've learned something and you're like, oh man, I got to do something about this now, right? Like there's this fire that kicks in. Well, that's exactly what's happening here. They've now learned, they now understand, and there's a fire that's kicked in and so they're starting to take responsibility. So they make these seven different claims, these seven uh, promises of how they're going to live out their obedience. Now, these seven things, which is to not marry Jewish neighbors, to observe the Sabbath, to observe the Sabbath year, to pay taxes, to supply wood for the burnt offerings, to give dues to their temple, and to not neglect the temple, all of those break down into three different umbrellas. So the one is to not marry non-Jewish neighbors. And why that's a big deal is, first off, that's God's original plan. So in Deuteronomy chapter 7, God implements this plan, not to marry other people, other cultures outside of Jews. Because for for the Hebrews, their faith in God God and God alone is based on who they are as a people group. And whenever they intermarried with other people groups, what that did is it drew their attention away from the Lord and they started to worship other gods. And so by saying we're not going to marry other people, they're saying we're going to devote ourselves to God. We're going to choose to be distinct in our relationship and our relationships. Secondly, the second umbrella is they say that they're going to promise to observe the Sabbath day and the Sabbath year. When they're talking about the Sabbath year, you know how normally when we talk about Sabbath, we talk about rest? That's not actually the message that's being told here. When they talk about Sabbath, what they're talking about is not, um, not being in the marketplace, not buying and selling. They're saying that that is the day that we're remembering that God provides for us, and we're not going to be interacting in the marketplace. So it's very different. They're saying their lifestyle and how they interact with people outside of their, uh, outside of their people group and how they interact in the marketplace is distinct. That's what they're saying through that honoring the Sabbath. And then honoring the Sabbath year, what they're saying is they've just spent a ton of time 
reflecting on the fact that God has freed them from their debts of sin, right? They've just reflected on their sin. They've just repented, confessed, and, and received for freedom from their sin. And when they experience or when they're living out the Sabbath year, they're uh, removing all debts. They're freeing everyone. And they're living as an expression of God's grace that they've experienced. So they're reflecting God. Lastly, in, this, in all of these different promises about the temple, so there's four different promises that they make regarding the temple. What they're saying is, is they're making worship their utmost priority. They haven't had a temple in years. And so they're making worship their utmost priority. And they're taking care of those who make worship happen. The Israelites, they're promising to be obedient, and they're taking responsibility for their faith. Now, often when we think about responsibility, and this is my final thought, when we think about responsibility, we often make it about achievements or checks and balances or things that we can check off, right? I'm being responsible, therefore, and we make it achievement-based. And when we use the word responsibility when it comes to faith, it often sounds, it sounds task-oriented or achievement-based. And this isn't, this isn't at all the, what's trying to be said here. When we take responsibility for our faith and when we make promises as a response to God's faithfulness to his promise, what's happening and what we're doing is, is that we become God-pleasers, not people-pleasers. We become, um, we experience more fully the, the fullness of God, the grace of God. We experience more fully in that because we're saying, I see what you're doing, God. You're so faithful, and I promise to be a part of it too. Right? So that when, when the winds come, we're saying, I promise that, God, you're going to be the weight in the hull of my boat. And when the winds come, I promise, God, that I'm going to be cemented into you as my foundation. And it says that when, uh, responsibility says that when things happen in my relationships, in my relationships, it, with my time, with my resources, I promise to always go to you. That's what responsibility is saying. And so this is my final question for you and for me. Have we responded to God's promises in our lives with a promise of responsibility? Or have we treated God's promises willy-nilly and just sort of gone along for the ride? What kind of promises or what kind of responsibility do we need to take in response to God's faithfulness in our lives? There's my final question and thought for us. Again, that's not meant to be uh, condemning more of a, of a place of like, how can we more fully experience God's goodness in our lives? Can I pray for you? Awesome. Lord, I thank you for this incredible group of people. God, I thank you for um, your faithfulness in their lives, how you have provided for them so often, have, how you have supplied for their needs. God, I thank you for your grace and your mercy that has been poured out to each one of us.
And Lord, I pray that as we respond to your promises, respond to your faithfulness, Lord, I pray that you would bring, our, bring to mind if there's anything that we do need to repent. Lord, I pray that you would bring to mind the things that you have done that we've forgotten so that we can remember your, your goodness even more so. And God, I pray that you would help us to be um, distinct people, that we would make choices and take responsibility to make our lives distinctly, uh, distinctly God-following, that we would, in, in our world, in our, in our relationships, in our time, with our resources, it would be distinctly different than the world. Lord, I thank you for the incredible um, honor it is to be your children. I thank you for the blessing that comes from being your children. So, Lord, I pray that you would go with each one now. I pray that you'd give them a really great lunch and, uh, and, and good rest uh, today as well. So thank you, Lord, for your goodness. And I pray this in your name. Amen. All right. Well, blessings on you guys. Have a great day. And if your weekend starts today, have a great weekend. The tree that's planted by the water isn't phased by the fire, so why should I?